Money. So you see a lot of, you know, lower, and, and that's really a class issue, and, and race does come into play. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR, 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Welcome to Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. It is a very good, happy Sunday morning. And as you guys probably noticed, if you're watching us via Ustream, I'm not Stanley Fritz. I am Selena Hill. (laughs) And we're having an all-girl panel, well, actually show, here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. Um, Again, my name is Selena Hill on Instagram, Twitter. And, well, Instagram and Twitter, it's Miss Selena Hill, spelled with the MS. But on Snapchat, it's S.Hill2020, where I snap about random stuff and have a lot of fun. And my name is Alyssa Fuchs, and I'm your legal correspondent. And you can find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Alyssa Fuchs. That's with an I. Or on Twitter at Alyssa Fuchs, also with an I. No surprise there. <laughs> um, or on the fan page, Politically Preposterous. You can Google it. It's Facebook.com slash politically preposterous or at poll preposterous on Twitter. Jackie? Hey guys, um, I'm Jackie Cohen, and you can find me on all the things on Snapchat, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter at Jackie Cohen, J A Q I C O H E N. Um, and I'm happy to be back. You're yeah. Not, you're not going to find her on J Date because you she got a really find me awesome boyfriend. Yeah, my, my nice Jewish boyfriend that I did not meet on J Date. You know, people <laughs> ask me that all the time. I'm but thinking you, if I should you, join it. You might sure, Selena, you might find Selena on Christian Mingle. Yeah. You'll, you'll find so Selena the, on J Date. Yeah, that's true. No, there's, I, I have never used J Date, although people kind of offensively ask me that all the time. Oh, P.S. Uh, Shanatova. To our, to our to our Jewish Jewish. Happy New Year! And oh, yes. yeah, but uh, uh, you know a, that J Date was getting sued by J Swipe or J Swipe? No, J Date is suing J Swipe over, over the J over the J, which I I feel like I as Jackie and a Jew should be able to sue both of them. Because that's crazy! It, like, isn't there room for everyone? It's interesting though. For, the for idea. all Jews, no matter what media platform, can we all just get along? It's and, interesting right? the idea that you could sue somebody over the use of a letter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, what about J Street? Are they suing J Street as well? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, that's really interesting. <laughs> that's I don't really know. That would be question. an interesting, maybe J Street um, is going to sue all of them. Know, speaking of J Street, they had a really big win this week. And we can get into that more during the news roundup. But, oh, yeah. Um, so we have a great show lined up today. And before we start the show, I want to just give a shout out to Scatter Radio. Again, that's scatterradio.com, who are our new partners. And um, they have great organic shows that you can listen to. On demand, whenever you whenever you uh, download, um, excuse me, you don't even have to download. You just have to go to the website, or you can even I think they may even have an app. So it's really cool and it's neat. And we're on Scatter Radio. You can check out some of our old shows on Scatter Radio. 
our name on Scatter Radio is L-Y-V-B-H. And if you still haven't figured it out, that's just the acronym for Let Your Voice Be Heard. So check us out there. And we have a great show lined up. We're going to start talking off, start talking about the DOJ crackdown on Wall Street and figure out, is this really progress or is this... You know, something that should have been happening all along. And will they will people, Wall Street criminals and executives still get slaps on the wrist when they corrupt our country and cause another financial meltdown if it was to happen again? So we have a very special guest who will be calling in. And Alyssa, our legal correspondent, is going to actually conduct that full segment because she knows all about it. And I'm surprised she hasn't even, like, hasn't worked for the DOJ. No, I wouldn't work for the DOJ. I do defense. Oh, um, right. <laughs> which is funny because it puts me in this awkward position where my politics says prosecute these bankers. And I sit here and do a radio show about why it doesn't happen. And, and yeah. my legal sense says, you know, once they get indicted, jump in there and get paid to defend them. Um, but, you know, it's also sort of that institutional divide is that I did actually do white collar criminal defense for a little while, but I much preferred to do criminal defense of street level crime. And because of the disparity that we see within who gets prosecuted and the institutionalized racism that occurs within our criminal justice system and sort of the idea that we almost have two different justice systems, which is something that we're going to get into talking about today, um, which is, you know, we don't see a lot of Wall Street types go to jail for some of these things that they have done, yet every single day we have black and brown people getting arrested and spending time in jail because of, I don't know, disorder. Some cops said they were being disorderly. Or no, they had a small amount of weed. Or they're standing in front of a Hyatt, and then the next thing they know, they're getting tackled, and it's like, oops, oh. wrong person. Right, right. Um, it's ridiculous. It so is. there's definitely, as I'll call it a divide, and I know Matt Tabibi, who is a writer with yeah. the Rolling Stone, actually wrote a book on this topic called The Divide, and um, which I'll recommend that people read, especially after this segment, if you want to know more about this topic. Um, yeah. You know, more beyond what we get to discuss here today. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And then later on in the show, we'll be speaking about why we may have another government shutdown. So if you remember in 2013, the partial government shutdown we had cost the U.S. economy $24 billion. And guess what? Republicans want to do it all over again. Why this time? Because they want to stop women from having reproductive rights and choices and Planned Parenthood. So we're going to talk about that debacle and Republicans and everything else that makes us really mad on a Sunday morning. And then last but not least, we're going to talk about food and security. Alyssa's going to have a great rundown, a great quickie on I don't want why poor people are in our country are for some, you know, why they cannot get access to healthy food, healthy food choices and why they seem to be. Well, a lot of them suffer from diabetes and obesity, um, even though they can't, you know, they, they're poor. So we're going to well, talk about I'm gonna that. I'm going to address anyway. that. But a, a big thing that I'm going to have you understand as part of this quickie is that although they're related, food insecurity and poverty are not the same thing. And it's kind of like whiskey and bourbon, right? All bourbons are whiskeys, but not all whiskeys are bourbons. So pretty much everybody who's poor is food insecure, but not everybody who's food insecure is necessarily what's considered poor or below the poverty line uh, here in America. And if you didn't know, uh, currently, as of last year, 14 percent of U.S. households lacked access to enough good food at some point during the year. So we're going to talk more about that during the quickie. And then hopefully um, in an upcoming show, we're going to talk about that more in detail uh, and we'll do a full segment on that. So you're going to have to keep tuning in to hear all about that. Definitely, guys. So we're going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we're talking about the DOJ crackdown on Wall Street. So stay tuned to Let Your Voice 
be heard. So Jackie and Alyssa were hysterical over that <laughs> Nicki Minaj line where she said, what did she say again, Jackie? She said something about her lawyer is Jewish. Jewish. my lawyer. He koshered the dill. He kosher yes. The and we did that, of course, because it's the Jewish New Year. Yeah, it's super intentional. Yes. Definitely not an accident. <laughs> we did. We did, guys. So we're back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. And we're kicking off the show talking about the kick down on Wall Street. Um, the DOJ has, the, well, has made an announcement from, uh, about these new policies that will supposedly crack down on the criminal activity that's been going on in Wall Street. So I'm going to throw it over to Alyssa. And then we have a very special guest on the line that we'll get to. All right, guys. So let's, let's take it back a minute. Let's step into the time machine and let's go back to 2008 because I think that's really where I want to start here. Uh, so if you don't remember, um, then maybe you were living under a rock or maybe <laughs> you were just too young or not paying attention. I don't know. But back in 2008... Um, Around, I want to say, this summer, we started to feel like there might be some instability in the stock market. And some of these, what we'll call bubbles, uh, were starting to seem like they were about to come to a bursting point, so to speak. Um, People started to get really concerned, but then they said, oh, it's the market, it will even out. Um, But what we didn't really know is that there was something really toxic brewing underneath the surface. And this surface, sorry. And this all culminated uh, in September of 2008, where all of a sudden, overnight, we realized that there was a big problem. Um, And all these banks started to realize that they didn't have any money to open in the morning because they had made some really risky, risky bets um, and done some really dirty, dirty deeds when it came to mortgages. And what eventually happened was at the last minute, some of these banks had to find other banks to bail them out. For example, Merrill Lynch was bought out by Bank of America. And now that's why Bank of America has Merrill Lynch Edge as part of the bank. Um, And other banks uh, asked for a bailout. They didn't get one. um, And they couldn't get anybody to buy them out. They ended up going under. Example of that would be Lehman Brothers, uh, which did not open up after that. Um, following the Lehman Brothers, you know, last minute try to save themselves, uh, the government realized that, wait, all, a lot of these banks are going to go under. And that's where we had uh, what's known as TARP or the bailout, where the government actually had to step in and say, wait, we have to prop these banks up. We have to bail them out because if we don't, the entire economy of the entire world could potentially co- collapse. Uh, Following this, we saw very, very few prosecutions of any of the people who had engaged in any of this, so to speak, wrongdoing. Um, One of the banks that was prosecuted was actually a really tiny bank in 
Chinatown, known as a Bacchus Bank, um, and they were prosecuted actually not by the feds, but by the district attorney's office in Manhattan. They were actually a really small bank. And there was a few other people that got prosecuted for insider trading, but over and above everything, what we saw was a situation where these banks were too big to fail and too big to jail. And so basically nothing happened. And then eventually the government started to say, okay, we're going to go after these banks, but we're not necessarily going to go after the individuals. We are going to go after these banks on the whole, and we are going to grant them what's known as deferred prosecution agreements, um, where they are going to pay really, really large fines. And they're going to say, we're really sorry, and we promise we're not going to do this ever again. And they're not going to turn over any individual actors that did any wrongdoing. Um, They're just going to turn over a lot of money to the government. And that's exactly what happened. Um, And nobody went to jail, or very few people went to jail, I should say. Um, And, for example, I know some guy named Raj. He went to jail for insider trading. You saw him. You know him? No. No, I'm saying Martha Stewart was another person who went to jail for insider trading. You had this Mm -hmm. prosecution of this small bank in Chinatown, as I pointed out. But the big banks, they extracted large fines, and they basically got a nice little slap on the wrist. Um, Fast forward to today. Um, and even before today, people are getting really mad and saying, you know, why didn't the DOJ go after these big right. banks? Why was nobody prosecuted? You hear, you know, calls from Occupy Wall Street to jail the bankers, X, Y, Z. Um, and last week, the Department of Justice or the DOJ, as I'll be referring to it throughout the segment, came out and they said, we are issuing this memorandum about how we are going to go after Wall Street bankers for wrongdoing. Um, And of course, the reaction to that on one hand was like, finally. And on the other hand was like, yeah, but are they really actually going to do it? You know, is this have any teeth? Does it actually mean anything? Um, And then further, you know, even if they do go after these, can they secure convictions? Uh, So um, with that being said, I'm going to introduce our great guest that we have today on with us. His name is Brandon Garrett. He's a professor of law at the University of Virginia Law School, and he is also the author of Too Big to Jail, How Prosecutors Compromise with Corporations. Good morning, Brandon. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So um, before we actually get into asking you any questions, I just wanted you, I know you heard my introduction, I wanted you to see if uh, anything in there that I said was incorrect, and if so, um, please correct me, and if not, um, you know, then we'll just go forward and I'll ask you, you know, why is it? Uh, you know, I'll just start there. Um, why is it that these corporations are too big to jail? They were the voice of Harlem, but the real crime wave is obviously oh. at the other end of that. Uh, hello? Uh, Brandon, are you, Brandon, are you still there? I'm, I haven't changed anything. Check that out. I'm going to look into that. Um, all right. So, you know, we're going to come back to that. We're going to try and solve that technical difficulty with uh, Mr. Garrett. Um, in the meantime, I'll just give you some background in that, um, you know, obviously, as I had already mentioned, nobody went to jail after this. And so now we have this memorandum and we have a lot of people that are really skeptical about whether the DOJ can do something. Right. Um, and I do want to have Brandon get in to answer this once we get him back on the line and we solve whatever technical issue we are having. Um, but part of what's so hard about going after these big banks is that um, under the current existing laws, sometimes even when they do go after them, it can be very hard to prove what they're doing is actually illegal. Right. And I mean, with a huge corporation, it must be difficult. And we can ask Brandon as well. It must be difficult to decipher who is responsible. You know, there's so many people involved. Who's responsible versus who is just like a rank and file employee following 
you know, right. orders. And, and also, and something Jackie and I were talking about off the air, is this idea of the CEO of going to jail. In, in some circumstances. Or the VP. The VP. Of- we don't want to get in a situation where the bank just designates somebody who's going to be the fall guy, so to speak, that they're going to just say, okay, we're going to pick this person and this person's going to be the person to go to jail. Um, and so if and when something happens and we get prosecuted, we're just going to turn over this person who's been predetermined as the person who's going to go to jail instead of the actual person who did the wrongdoing. Right. The actual or the actual CEO of the corporation who's. Yeah, who's no, involved. definitely. Um, so it, it's interesting. And then we, we had talked a little bit about, you know, what is the purpose of <laughs> going to jail? And, you know, it's I read an article that said we'd all love to see these guys do a perp walk. Right. We'd all love to see. These big CEOs getting taken out in handcuffs the way that, you know, sort of the Occupy Wall Street movement envision that that's how that would result. But ultimately, is that going to be I mean, you know, are they going to go to like extended sleepaway camp for this like super low max? Right. Or low, you know. And then later on in the um, in this conversation. Now, I think we have Brandon back on. But later on in the conversation, we'll also sort of talk about this disparity between street crime and street criminals and sort of the institutionalized racism that we see with respect to mass incarceration and the war on drugs um, as compared and contrast to what we see on Wall Street, where, you know, largely these people are not necessarily operating out of necessity. They're operating out of greed. And they're also not facing the severe uh, consequences like people are who are getting caught up in the war on drugs. On that note, I'm hoping that we now have Brandon back on. Brandon. Hi. Uh, There we go. Morning. All right, good. So we'll go back to the beginning, and I will ask you to correct anything that I may have said that was incorrect, and then to start off just answering this general question of why it's so hard to go after these banks under the existing laws. Well, you, you all may remember last summer, Eric Holder, when he was still attorney general, gave a speech where he said, there is no such thing as too big to jail. No bank is above the law. And so I, I thought about canceling my book right there, because clearly I was talking about an imaginary problem. Uh, now, I, I, the, corporations really are much more accountable under the criminal law in the U.S. than in any other country. And that's a good thing. So you, you, people have seen that you know, the banks have been paying multi-billion dollar fines, big penalties. The Department of Justice has been sort of chestnumping over that. They're paying bigger fines than anyone has ever seen before. But critics like me have been complaining that that's not, that doesn't answer the too-big-to-jail problem because there were, there were bankers, there were individual people who committed those crimes. A company can only be prosecuted if employees and officers did crimes. And when banks are prosecuted... It's only about half the time that any employees are even charged. And when they are charged, it's only about half the time that any of them receive any kind of a jail sentence. And that's, that is not, those are not typical outcomes for federal criminal cases. And so the question is, you know, are banks effectively protecting their employees from, from accountability for crimes that almost brought down the world economy? Uh, plus there's the concern that when banks are prosecuted, we've seen some big bank prosecutions over the last few years. But they haven't been for anything related to the financial crisis. Right. right. They've been some insider trading cases, singing international currency rates like the LIBOR and the Forex, which is serious conduct. Uh, but, but for the really the stuff that has really troubled us, uh, especially the mortgage fraud related conduct uh, that, that brought on the financial crisis, banks have settled their cases out of court and not in criminal cases, in civil cases. And so I, I guess people like me were happy that the Department of Justice announced changes this last week. They say that they are now going to be focusing on 
individual conduct and focusing their criminal cases on what people committed the crimes. But, of course, that raises the question, really? That wasn't obvious all along. That wasn't <laughs> what you were doing. Right. Uh, you were, you were, normally, if a criminal comes forward and says, look, uh, some guys committed a crime. I'm not going to tell you who they were. But I, I promise, you know, there, there are some people that committed crimes. A prosecutor would say, well, you have to tell us who did what. Otherwise, otherwise you're obstructing justice. And that's, that's what corporations have been able to get o- away with in, in far too many cases. Right. Now, and, and that's an interesting point, because a lot of people have said to me when I've raised this topic that, oh, the, well, the Department of Justice doesn't prosecute white collar crime. And I actually did some federal criminal defense. I worked for a criminal CJA lawyer, which is essentially a signed counsel plan for federal criminal cases. Um, that was back when I was first out of law school. And the DOJ actually does prosecute white collar criminals. Like, for example, um, we I saw a prosecution of a medical facility that was cons- uh that was committing large-scale uh, Medicaid and Medicare fraud, uh, billing oh, yeah. billing the government for treatment that never happened for people that they never saw, and they went after them. And you know, I saw the, the, gover- the government is quick to step in when it's its own money that's being taken, of course. Right, right, and and so I think we should dispel the myth that there's no white-collar prosecutions. The DOJ isn't just prosecuting war on drugs crimes; they are, in fact, prosecuting white-collar crimes. But we don't see that as much on Wall Street, and that leads me to the next point, which is some. Some people have said that um, it's very hard to prosecute Wall Street because whether what they determining whether or not they've actually committed a crime is hard. So I was hoping that uh, you could address that, yeah. Professor Garrett, about why it is under our current criminal laws, federal criminal laws, it's very it's a very gray area as to whether the things that they're doing are actually illegal. Well, it depends which things. And so let me let me give an example of one of the biggest bank prosecutions in recent years, which led to a lot of criticism including criticism using the phrase too big to jail, which made me happy since that's the title of my book. I want people to understand the importance of that phrase. Uh, but HSBC is a major bank centered in the U.K. now. It used to be centered in Hong Kong. HSBC was caught engaging in some of the worst money laundering conduct anyone has ever seen. And so maybe people have a hard time understanding exactly how some derivative and mortgage-backed securitization works. But this was, this was clear criminal conduct. Money was making its way through HSBC's subsidiaries all around the world to the biggest drug cartels in Mexico. They were apparently designing their cash boxes to fit through the teller windows, the exact size of the teller windows that HSBC had in Mexico, because that was the place to dump your cash if you were a drug kingpin in Mexico. Their money was making its way to all the regimes around the world that face U.S. sanctions. So North Korea, Burma, Sudan, uh, money was making its way to banks connected with terrorism in the Middle East. Basically, all the places money was not is never supposed to go, money was going through HSBC to the most dangerous people and groups in the world. And no one had ever seen a scandal of this size before. Just incredibly serious. And there are there hearings that Senator Carl Levin held in the U.S. Senate. He ran the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. And they, they got over a million pages of documents. They produced a detailed report describing how there were people at HSBC who knew this was happening compliance officers who are complaining, saying, we can't do our job. You're giving us a few dozen people to, to attack money laundering around the world. It, it's happening at, at our bank, and then we're just, we, we can't do our job. This is, this is dangerous. This is disastrous. And the response tended to be, be quiet, you're fired. Mm. And so what, what happened when all this, really because of the Senate committee's work, when all this came to light? Well, the Eastern District of New York, uh, then ran, run by Rettel Lynch, entered into a non-prosecution type agreement with HSBC. It was a deferred prosecution, 
where there would be no criminal charges filed against HSBC. If they cooperated, uh, they paid their fine on time. They did pay over $2 billion in fines. If they agreed to monitoring for five years, then there would be no criminal charges, no criminal record. Now, those kind of deals happen every day in courtrooms in New York City. But those are for people who are first-time offenders, juveniles, the types of people who don't deserve a criminal record. Right. You know, show good conduct, stay clean for a year, and, and we'll, we'll dismiss the charges. For this to happen in the biggest money laundering case of all time was remarkable. But you could say, well, look, that's just a bank. All the bank can really do is pay a fine. It can't go to jail. Literally, it can't go to jail. And the bank agreed to cooperate in any investigations of its employees. So you figure, okay, you, you get the bank to cooperate. It's an amazing snitch. It can give you all the emails, all the documents. But what happened in that case is that not a single employee was charged, not, not low level, not high level, not in between. And so you had people on both sides on the Hill, Senator Warren, Senator Grassley on the Republican side, saying, has this bank been given a, a get-out-of-jail-free card? This is too big to jail. Not a single employee was charged when they admitted that there were crimes. The bank admitted that there were crimes. Well, someone committed them. Why has no one been charged? Absolutely. Absolutely. On that note, we are actually going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Professor Garrett. And we will take some phone calls if you have any questions or if you have a comment. Our number is 212-650-6903. On that note, we are going to go to break. And when we come back, we will continue this conversation. Get up on my trap house. I've been selling since like the fifth grade. Really never made no difference with the sh** made. And we are back. Good morning. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohn and our great professor of law, Mr. Brandon Garrett from the University of Virginia Law School. We are talking about why banks are too big to jail and the financial crisis. And we're talking about this new memorandum that the Department of Justice put out last week um, about how they are now going to focus on going after the banks. And that's actually what I want to get into talking about right now um, with the professor. So, uh, Professor, the law has not changed. Um, you know, there's been no legislative action in Washington, D.C. There's been no new criminal laws passed to deal with these problems, at least as of yet. Um, but yet this memorandum comes out and essentially it is the high ranking officials at the Department of Justice saying, we are now going to focus on this, um, you know, of course, better late than never, as I would say. But, um, you know, the law hasn't changed. So what changes can we expect from the Department of Justice, uh, sorry, with, from the Department of Justice following this memo? And I know Jackie wanted to sort of piggyback onto that question as well. Yeah, and I, I want to know, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical um, and I want to know if I... As a, you know, liberal, um, economic liberal, I, I would love to see these people that have committed these crimes sort of go off to jail and get what they deserve, I guess, right? But ultimately, is this going to do anything? Is this going to systemically fix anything? Or are corporations going to figure out a way to work around these laws and, um, you know, just be more deceitful and sneaky? Professor? Well, one, one, one of this initial thing, this memo does, isn't about banks in particular. Just says any type of corporation that's being prosecuted, prosecutors should be asking the company early on to tell them who did what and to provide all the evidence about the actual people who committed crimes. And you think, well, that should have been obvious all along. Is that that's a change? They were just letting companies pay pay fines before without saying who actually committed the crimes. Um, I, I'm guessing that actually, you know, in the past, companies were asked to say who did what 
and we know that they were. So I, you know, I'm not even sure how much this is actually a change. Um, it may just be to remind prosecutors that you can't be letting the individuals off the hook and that corporate cooperation means real cooperation. Tell us who actually committed the crimes and show us how it really happened. Uh, you know, I, I think that this memo is at best a change in tone. At least it's a good change of tone. At least the Department of Justice is sort of starting to hear the critics who are concerned that they're letting individuals off the hook. Um, but I don't think it, it's going to make it any easier, though, to hold the higher-ups accountable, because one concern is, okay, well, you know, what if the company, the bank, throws a few low-level people under the bus? In the speech that the uh, Deputy Attorney General Yates gave at NYU the other day, she said, you know, we obviously don't feel like we've done our job well if all that happens is we, we jail the vice president in charge of going to jail, right, the, the fall guy. Um, and you see some of these cases where low-level people get charged, and they say, well, why me? There's like a thousand other people all doing the exact same thing. And so they get, you know, they get some probation sentence or something like that. And maybe that's the fair thing because they weren't the ones really in charge. Professor, I have a question. Um, and guys, if you guys have questions, again, you can call in. The number is 212-650-6903. You can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. So um, I wanted to ask why the DOJ made this announcement now. Um, you know, yeah. Loretta Lynch is our new attorney general. And, you know, she and she's starting off, in my opinion, she's starting off her term very well, very strong. And the thing is, the DOJ has been going um, has received a lot of criticism, especially under the Obama administration, when it comes to just giving slaps on the wrist to these Wall Street executives and the individuals behind this corruption. So do you think that this is just a response or, you know, is there any revel Revelance, um, um, is there any significance to why um, they made this announcement now? Well, I, I actually think this announcement was in the works before Loretta Lynch took over. Uh, last year, we started to hear in some of the speeches that DOJ officials were giving that, uh, you know, look, we hear the critics, and from now on, we want to make sure the companies know that they're not going to get credit for cooperating unless they really cooperate and tell us about the individuals who committed the crimes. And, and uh, the white-collar lawyers that I talked to, they said that they've they were basically getting that message in the cases that they were working on, you know, but even even in the middle or early part of last year. So in some ways, this memo, they were already doing this informally, testing it out. Hopefully, plenty of prosecutors have been doing it all along. But I do think that it's, it's not just this memo. The department has started to reconsider some of these lenient policies towards corporations. And we shouldn't pin it all on Obama. This all began with a memo that was written in the Clinton administration by Eric Holder. The deferred prosecution out-of-court type approach to corporate cases really got cemented in 2003 under the W. Bush administration. So it's been multiple administrations that have been going in this direction, treating corporations more leniently. We're starting to see a reaction to it, and not just about cooperation in individual cases, but they're starting to insist that banks plead guilty and have a criminal record. So some of the biggest cases this last year didn't get settled with these out-of-court deals. Banks are starting to be, including big Wall Street banks, they're starting to have to plead guilty and they're getting convictions. And so I'm glad to see that a whole bunch of aspects of this too-big-to-jail problem are starting to get addressed by the Department of Justice. And I think it's only because of critics, it's only because of the public pressure that anything is changing. Right. No, I, I understand. I mean, but what's actually the practical effect, other than a fine, of a bank getting a conviction? When a person gets convicted of a misdemeanor or a felony, they go to jail or they serve community service or yeah. they have to pay a fine and then they have a criminal record. They have to check a box if they want to apply for a job. A lot of times that can, sometimes keeps them out of a job. An ad- yep. issue we've addressed at length here on Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio and other aspects. So there are actually consequences um, and also collateral consequences of a individual 
individual taking a plea or getting convicted at trial. What is the consequence of a bank taking a plea or getting convicted of trial of a criminal offense, considering the fact that a bank is not an individual, it is a corporate entity, so to speak? Well, having a criminal record actually can be very serious for a company. So I'm glad they're starting to get criminal records. We've had banks that have actually settled multiple prosecutions in recent years, banks that have been prosecuted two or three times. And for individuals, that would mean you're a recidivist, right? You're going to get a much more serious sentence the second time around, the third time around. That's the number one way to get your sentence, you know, in the stratosphere in federal court. Uh, But these banks could say, look, we're not recidivists. We don't have criminal records. The last case was a deferred prosecution agreement. The case before that was a non-prosecution agreement. And so they can't get sentenced as recidivists, and they, and they can't be accused of breaching probation, which also, for individuals, that's a big, big deal. You commit right. another crime while you're on probation. Banks can say, hey, we weren't on probation. We just had a deferred prosecution agreement. That's a great point. But, but it's also the collateral. You, you mentioned collateral consequences, which is such an important topic for individuals where you, know, you can't get a job. You can't be in public housing. There are all these consequences that kick in when you have a conviction. Well, banks have been saying for years, oh, you can't convict us because of the collateral consequences. We could have our charters revoked. We could lose the ability to work with, with public companies. Uh, we could, you know, for, for pharmaceutical companies, we could lose the ability to work with Medicaid. For arms contractors, we could lose the ability to contract with the federal government. You know, we, the fine is no big deal. We don't care about the fine. What we're worried about is the collateral consequences, being suspended or debarred as a company. Right. And, and prosecutors have been very, very sensitive to that in a way that they're not when it's an individual person losing their individual job or their housing or their welfare benefits or their entire family's housing. Uh, This is the one area where prosecutors are really sensitive about collateral consequences. Right, and which is so interesting. It leads into the larger conversation that we're going to have about the the differences between, you know, people who get prosecuted uh, for white-collar crimes, so to speak, and people who get prosecuted for street crimes. I know that you're going to have to get off soon, uh, Mr. Garrett. So I wanted to ask, I guess, uh, one or two quick more questions before you have to go, which is um, one of them is just a follow-up about this collateral consequences. I mean, is this part of that response to when people say, you know, when we go after these big corporations, that affects people on Main Street, right? So if I work for ExxonMobil and ExxonMobil gets a huge, uh, you know, gets a criminal prosecution, now they have to lay people off. That affects my job. And so is that one of the things that you're talking about when you talk about why the government has been so uh, in tune with the collateral consequences against corporations? And is that actually true? Like people really do get laid off or companies start to fail. People who have invested in those companies in their 401ks and stuff like that end up feeling those collateral consequences? Is there actual, you know, some some evidence to substantiate that argument? Oh, yeah, and that's absolutely what companies say. They say, look, if, if by punishing us, you're not punishing the people who did the crimes. You're punishing innocent shareholders, employees. This whole approach really kicked off after Arthur Anderson went under, and tens of thousands of employees lost their jobs, and people said, well, wait a minute, you know, there was a big group at Arthur Anderson that was working with Enron, and they got you know, convicted of obstructing justice. The Enron group may have been at fault, but how about all the other employees? They didn't do anything wrong. Why did you destroy the entire accounting firm? And, and sometimes there's some real merit to that argument. You know, there was a case involving a, bilking the government of Medicaid funds, and it was like a community hospital in North Carolina. And the prosecutors were saying, look, we don't want to, we don't want to close down this community hospital. It's the only hospital in the area. You know, they, they did terrible things. They need to pay big fines and fix things up, but you know, we don't want to convict them. We don't. We don't want this hospital to go under. And so it's true, not just of banks, but of of you know local companies, where 
it, it does sometimes make sense to have a more sensitive approach. But if you're going to be sensitive to the company and worry about collateral consequences, then on the flip side, okay, we'll focus on the individuals who actually committed the crimes. And, that, and that's been the problem. We're being lenient to the company, and we're letting individuals go off the hook. And right. that's the worst of all possible and, and even worse, you know, which I'll address after, is the idea that we're not taking into account collateral consequences when we put somebody in jail for, yeah. say, selling a small amount of drugs on their family and their yeah, livelihood. We, um, but I do know yeah, we that... Need, we, we, need, we need to fair prosecutions for individual people, not for companies. Absolutely. I do know that you have to get off with us, so I was hoping to just, you know, wrap it up, give us inform- some, our listeners some information on how they can get in touch with you, and also maybe in doing that, sort of address whether or not any new laws would actually help us and, and what the possibility of if Congress actually passing any new laws um, or or whether it wouldn't make any sense because we already have all the resources, all the laws we need on the books. Uh, they just need yeah. to do a better job. So I was hoping you could address that as a final question and then tell our listeners how they can uh, find out more and get a copy of your book, et cetera. Sure. Well, I really think, you know, the, the pressure from, from your listeners, from all of us, that's the only reason why anything has changed in the past year or two. But I think we could use new legislation from the Hill. There are a lot of things that we could do to hold corporations more accountable for the most serious crimes uh, I kind of think corporate crime is far more serious than the petty crime that lands people years and years in jail. We need to switch our prosecution priorities in this country. My book is called Too Big to Jail, and you could buy it and read it if you'd like. If you'd like to read about some of these cases without buying the book, I keep a website at the University of Virginia Law School Library where I have a huge resource page, archives of all of these co- uh, corporate prosecution agreements. So you can look up your favorite company and read how they got prosecuted <laughs> and just read through the agreements if you'd like. Um, but, but more important, I do think, is to speak out, write op-eds, write to your congressperson, write to your senator, and say, you know, we want, I really think even more important than changing the law, because we do have really tough criminal laws in this country, like you said, is getting more resources for these prosecutors. You know, these, these banks these, and major corporations, they, they hire entire law firms to defend themselves. They, will, they can routinely spend, you know, when the German company Siemens was prosecuted, they spent $800 million investigating themselves and preparing their defense and preparing to cooperate with prosecutors to resolve the case. Hundreds of millions of dollars in their defense. The prosecutors may have been lucky if they had two prosecutors assigned to the case, maybe an investigator or two. And so there's just no, we, we need serious corporate crime strike forces in this country, but that would take money from Congress. Right. Brandon Garrett, thank you so much again for calling in. We definitely enjoyed all your expertise and commentary. And I know Alyssa has some final words for us on this topic. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely have some final thoughts. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some of your final thoughts as well um, before we go to our break and go into our news roundup. But, um, you know, there's one thing I really wanted to get into talking about, at least in this last three or four minutes that we have, is the disparity between uh, corporate crime and between non-corporate crime. Because, you know... When, as um, our guest rightly pointed out, the collateral consequences in these types of things are great. So when a bank is going to get, or a corporation, because I don't want to just say bank, it's it's banks and other corporations is going to get prosecuted, they automatically, the first thing they do is cry collateral consequences. I'm going to have to lay off all these employees. I'm going to have, you know, our stock is going to fall. That's going to affect our shareholders and, and on and on and on and on. And yet... We don't have that conversation when we're talking about, uh, you know, street crime. So for if somebody is committing large scale fraud working for a corporation or a bank out of what I will call street greed, not even necessity, because they have lots of money um, and then they cry collateral consequences and no individuals get prosecuted. Um, But when 
somebody, let's say, is poor and they don't have a lot of options and maybe they have a criminal record already from when they're younger, you know, and so now they get into this bad cycle and so they decide, okay, I'm going to sell some drugs because that is an easy way for me to make money and they sell a small amount of drugs to somebody um, and then they are getting prosecuted. Um, They're going to go to jail. That is going to have collateral consequences on them and also on their families. But we don't take those into account or prosecutors don't take those into account. And we see this large disparity where we feel almost as if we have two separate criminal justice systems. We have one criminal justice system for people who have money, and we have another criminal justice system for people who do not have money. And as I've mentioned numerous times before on this show, um, while not necessarily the same issue, but interconnected is the issue of race and class. So I was hoping to get your opinions on that, guys. I'm going to open it up to you or to Jackie. Do you have yeah. anything else you wanted to add before I close it out and we go to break? Well, so I mean, my the question that I'm left with is if we're starting to prosecute individuals for these crimes, not the um, corporation as a whole, but the individuals. I mean, you mentioned that there is there are collateral consequences when prosecuting an individual person for whatever crime they may have committed but um, corporations as we learned tend to use that as the reason why not to prosecute right because people lose their jobs it will affect all these people that had were no way implicated in the crime but does and I'll ask you does uh, prosecuting the individuals the CEOs of these corporations um, does that mitigate or help mitigate those collateral consequences to an extent. You know, I, th- I think so, or I'd hope so, because the idea is that we're not going after the corporation here, that their stock is not going to take a dive. They're not necessarily going to have to lay people off because we're just going after the individual bad actor right. at that corporation. My concern is, and as our guest pointed out, and as you've mentioned, that we don't want to have somebody who's the fall guy, who's just the vice president of going to jail, who if something goes wrong, they're like, oh, this is the guy. So anyways, on that note, you know, my hope is that this memorandum will have some teeth. Um, but, you know, I'm also concerned that the laws we have on the books are not good enough to go after the types of corporate crime that we see occurring in today's world. And really, the ultimate goal is to get Congress and the legislatures uh, to pass better laws in order to deal with this issue. The problem is, as we know, politicians are largely in the pockets of corporations due to the fact that they fund their campaigns. And mm-hmm. so the likelihood of these types of laws being passed is slim to none, in my opinion. Um, uh, as our guest rightly pointed out, the best thing that we can do in this situation is to contact our representatives and tell them that we care about this issue and that we want to see better laws passed in order for these people to be held accountable for their actions. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to go right into the news roundup, and then we're going to talk about the government shutdown and food insecurity later on in the show. We 
are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Happy Sunday, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. We just wrapped up a great conversation about the DOJ crackdown, and we had a great guest that called in, Brandon Garrett. Um, so shout out to him for calling in today. And now it's time for the news roundup. That means it's time for us to share and talk about some of the news stories that really touched us, moved us, or made us really upset uh, during this past week. And guys, if you want to chime in because you have a, a new story that you want to share with us, you can call us up at 212-650-6903. You can also tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. So I wanted to start off with one of the news stories I was really happy to hear, and that Senate Democrats actually band together to prevent President Obama from having to veto um, the Republican disapproval of the Ar- Iran nuclear deal, which is his his historic deal that he announced back in July. And as we know, um, him and five other um, world countries, they agreed to lift sanctions off of Iran um, in return. Um, and so Iran, as a result, they're going to receive billions of dollars, but they promise not to build a nuclear weapon. And it's diplomatic and it means we don't have to go to war. And Iran has agreed not to build this nuclear weapon. But... Most of all Republicans in our Congress were like, this is a horrible deal. We have to stop it. I'm not sure what their resolution was, but they band together and they were like, we're going to oppose it. But Senate Democrats definitely came to um, President Obama's defense and they and they they did prevent that disapproval resolution from going into effect. And we have the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah, which is exciting. I know a lot of people. Yeah, and you you asked what the what their alternative solution right, was. Right. Yeah. It was either you know war or just holding <laughs> on to sanctions. Drop some bombs. Have no meaning anymore. So I, I was very happy to see the support in the Senate. Uh, and, of course, now I think this, the House is now trying to pass some other disapproval yeah. resolution. But ultimately, you know, this will go – the deal seems like it's going to go into effect uh, yeah. or at least presumably, although some people are saying that the way this was done was really gone about wrong because they're saying that technically the deal is a treaty and a treaty requires two-thirds approval by Congress uh, and this instead requires two-thirds of Congress to disapprove in order for the deal not to go into effect. So they're calling it like a reverse treaty. They're saying it doesn't comply with the Constitution. Uh, it is an interesting argument. You may see a lawsuit come out of that where somebody is going to challenge the constitutional grounds, kind of like the lawsuit that um, the House brought against the president over executive overreach. So that'll be interesting to see that, how that plays out going forward and how, if there is a lawsuit, how it will affect the deal once it goes into effect. So I'm definitely interested in seeing that. Yeah, no, I I definitely am too. Um, Another thing that was interesting this week was the fact that Walter Scott's murderer, um, which is the ex- uh, South Carolina cop that shot him while he was running away, shot him like eight or nine times in the mm-hmm. back, um, and then said that, you know, he did it because he was in fear when Walter Scott supposedly touched his taser while he was trying to tase him. So he's trying to um, he's trying to actually um, make bond and be released on bond to be freed from jail. But there have been has been so much uh, protests and outrage around releasing this ex-cop from jail because i mean we've all watched that video multiple times and it is disturbing to the highest level and the highest degree and i wouldn't feel um safe if this man was out Mm -hmm. on the street i wouldn't 
I would disagree with you on that. And as from a purely criminal defense perspective, bail isn't about the egregious nature of the crime. That's what punishment is for after mm-hmm. conviction. Bail is only about one thing. And sure, I wouldn't want him back on the streets as a police officer. Obviously, you know, if anything, you know, he has a contract because of his union, he should still be stripped of his badge and his gun and placed on modified duty or, you know, permanent leave, at least administrative leave for now. But as to him actually just getting out, like, like there's only one real pur- there's really two purposes behind bail mainly one in New York which is to secure that idea the idea that you're going to come back to court and so uh, you know I don't think that but should, should he have that option? Because the, the judge has not decided whether he should have the option to have bail or not because right, so of the, the nature of the what crime. The, well, that that's also under their law, which is maybe right. under their law they can take into account the nature of the crime. In New York, you're not allowed to do that. Um, but yeah, so, so that's what the argument was. And but I don't, I don't know. I still disagree with that. I, don't, I mean, I just disagree with that from a fundamental criminal perspective. When you're arrested, it's an allegation. And while we all saw the video, and I'm not defending the officer. I hope sure. he gets convicted and goes to jail. So I don't want to make it seem like that. But I'm just talking from a purely like criminal defense perspective, forgetting about who is being prosecuted for a second, which leads us sort of back into our initial conversation, which is like people uh, and corporations, for that matter, are innocent until proven guilty. Like that's the bedrock of our criminal justice system, or at least is supposed to be. And, you know, from that perspective, I feel like if the person's going to come back to court and they're not a danger to the community. And obviously, I think if he doesn't get his gun and his badge and isn't a police officer, he's not a danger that he's going to just be running around shooting random people in the community like some serial killer might or some serial rapist. Then, you know, I think he should at least... They should consider bail. Right. Like, I'd rather see him let out on bail and then convicted for the crime than see him sit in a cell with no bail set and then, you know, not release for whatever. No, I mean, yeah, I if, he's, if he's acquitted, Agreed. then, I mean, it's just going to be outrage. But the thing is, there's so much protest behind just even releasing him. So I think that for the sake of the people, especially in South Carolina, and to prevent a riot or whatever it is, um, I think that might that may be coming into play here. I mean, the best uh, argument for him not to be released is his own safety, is that if he gets sure. out, somebody else may hurt him That's or true. kill him or exact revenge. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here. So we have our first major dropout yes. of the 2016 race. Oh, yeah. Um, Rick Perry dropped out. He is no longer running for president. He is still under indictment. Speaking of a more he criminal justice. Under things, yeah, so he's and actually still president. indictment under indictment, which leads me back to something I just said. An indictment is an allegation. It's not necessarily proof that you committed a crime. Um, that requires a guilty plea or a conviction after trial um but on his way out the door of course he also had to say many many not nice things about donald trump which of course makes me like rick perry just slightly and actually i've said this before while i vehemently disagree with rick perry on 99.9 percent of issues if you know anything about rick perry like yes he had his oops moment um and yes (laughs) he's like definitely probably in the pocket of some corporation or some lobbyist but he's not an idiot like some of the other people People who are running or who are holding political offices like he's actually, yeah, I don't you know, know like on the on the spectrum, he's a little smarter than some of the I, other that's ones. Not, I don't think that's saying that much. One, of, <laughs> I, I had a very good laugh on the way up here. Um, I was on Twitter and um, Alexandra Petrie, who's a writer for Washington Post, tweeted uh, in quotes, go on, get 
And it's supposed to be Rick Perry tearfully releasing his glasses back into the wild. Uh, <laughs> LOL. Really funny, yeah. I'm just waiting for Lindsey Graham to drop out and, another, and other people because, I mean, like, they're not doing well in national polls whatsoever. Yeah, who and do we think is next? Lindsey Graham and my, or, or maybe um, Bobby no, Jindal. I think Bobby Jindal or yeah, Lindsey Bobby Graham Jindal. or maybe George Pataki. Uh, somebody yeah, who's in that second round of the I would debate. say Pataki. Um, you're going to also see... After the debate this week, the CNN debate is yeah, this week. Um, it is. There's like a ton of, I was thinking about this the other day. There's like a ton of debates. Like, so we're not going to be able to cover them all here because otherwise you'd get 17 Let Your Voice Be Heard shows about Republican debates. For our debates own sanity, we you, won't do that. Yeah, for our own sanity. And also you would probably <laughs> literally hate if we did a show after every debate. But um, obviously, um, you know. It's going to be more solidified as people start dropping out because what's going to start to happen is like Trump has a lot of support right now, but there's also some people that are sort of up there with him. And then there's some people that kind of have some support, but as people start to dry, drop out, their supporters are now going to join other candidates. Oh, yeah, sure. And as, as they join other candidates, you're, you may start to see shift in poll numbers. And also as there's more debates, you're going to see uh you know some people start to shoot more ahead and other people may start to drop back so it'll be really interesting to see what happens after the next debate after we have a few more dropouts as to who these people's supporters flock to next right there has actually been a little shift so donald trump has been dominating most national polls um but ben carson seems to be on the trail on his trail a little bit uh, really? he's actually yeah yeah ben carson has been doing better and better and it just shows that a lot of people a lot of republicans a lot of conservatives are tired of the establishment and they're looking for someone who hasn't worked traditionally in politics and they want that fresh new voice and they're saying like you know what for the last few elections we did go with the establishment candidate and look where it's got us nowhere right and i mean i want to be clear ben carson and donald trump are complete jerks like they're, <laughs> they're not really qualified not, to be president but i wonder you know i think about that a lot right where the, Donald Trump is polling so well, and it, if Ben Carson is doing well too, I mean, if you listen to the things that either of them say, it's absolute nonsense, right? They don't actually say things that make sense, but I think that that brings to light a bigger problem with the political system in general, that at this point, people are so disenfranchised by politicians. They're so, you know, they're, they are just seeking out people that are telling it, quote unquote, like it is, and they'd rather that than actual, you know, intelligent policy discussions because they're so disenfranchised by the political system. I don't remember what it was I was watching the other day. It may have been Colbert mm -hmm. uh, on The Late Show, which I've taken to watching because I, I really like him. And I really yet. like him as himself and I not as like yeah, this pundit. But anyways, I think it was him. And they went around and they asked, like, why do you like Donald Trump? And the guy's response was just like, because he's going to make America great again, <laughs> which is like legit, <laughs> like his slogan. Like wow. They're like, OK, no, like we get that. But like what policy ideas of his do you like do you think will work like and the guy was just like well you know he's just gonna make america great again so like you're talking about low information voters that are right. just like you know they hear these catchphrases like make america great again and they're like yeah i want that but like okay but, like, yeah that's without ridiculous understanding like what that means but again i i do you know and as someone i am like the most unsympathetic to donald trump person to ever exist but um, I do think that there's something, you know, I don't think that everybody that is supporting Donald Trump is an idiot, right? I think that there's a bigger problem with the political system that is leading people towards following him because they're just so over the the status quo. Yeah, you know, no, that, that that's definitely true. Um, just to switch gears a little bit. So on a lighter note, um, there's this unique rare dolphin that is completely the pink. pink. Yeah. Yes, pinky. 
he has turned <laughs> up <laughs> and, oh excuse me she she has turned Aww. back up in louisiana and um i just wanted to shout it out i, I saw the video of pinky <laughs> she's a really cute really like and she's really pink and she's not albino it's just a, like a genetic defect she and she pink. popped back up <laughs> Cute. Speaking of somebody <laughs> who hates the rainbow. Um, oh, snap. <laughs> all right. We have to give a follow-up on Kim Davis. Oh, yeah. If we, like, Must we? It, it, yeah, we do. I mean, listen, I'm kind of sick of hearing it. I really, really am, but I feel like it's necessary that I give you a follow-up. If you want to know more about why Kim Davis went to jail and why she didn't go to jail, you should listen to my quickie that I did last week. It's up on our website, iTunes Podcast on Scatter Radio, and I think on one other place that I'm forgetting, Stitcher. Um, so definitely check it out. But... Um, um, the update on Kim Davis is so she's out of jail, um, but now, of course, she has now filed another court appeal saying that, um, you know, she still shouldn't have to issue the licenses and uh, that so she's also arguing that some of the licenses that her deputy clerks issues are invalidated, even though the attorney general for the state of Kentucky says, no, those licenses are completely valid. Um, and now she's saying also that you know, she still, again, you know, doesn't want to do her job. And now there's going to be another court hearing. And then, of course, the Oath Keepers, which are like this Second Amendment nut job group, um, they have said that they are going. This is like some more of that Bundy Ranch crap. Yeah. They're like, we're going to go to Kentucky. And if the federal judge tries to put her in jail again, we're going to have a shootout with the marshals. Oh. And we're oh not going to let the marshals take her Stop. into custody. I swear. So remember that whenever <laughs> black people have a protest, uh, nonviolent in the streets of, you know, Ferguson or Baltimore or New York over the killing of an innocent unarmed black person, it's like, oh, my God, the world is ending. What are these people doing out in the streets? But whenever white people want to turn up with guns, and fight against the government. Right. It's like all hands on deck for the revolution. Ugh. We're not doing anything wrong. And then, you know, of course, you hear all that awful rhetoric about protesters and looters and thugs getting thrown around. You know what? These people are thugs. Showing up with guns saying you're going to fight the federal government and you're going to shoot at a federal law enforcement right. agent, that is thuggery at its best. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're going to use that word, I think we should use it appropriately because we know that thug has been used um, as a coded word for black people or just the N-word. But it's like, how come we never hear it when it would be most appropriate? Just remember, if it's armed insurrection in support of the Second Amendment and the First Amendment religious freedom, then it's totally cool because they're white and they have guns. Because white people. Right. White, because white America. People. Right. America. Right. So uh, speaking of that, I actually wanted I had some positive news. So the Please. White House and New York City has teamed up to donate $79 million to speed up the testing of the rape kit backlog. So apparently we have not been testing um, the rape kit. So what happens is if a woman is a rape survivor and then she goes to get t um, tested at a hospital, um, they, they take the DNA evidence and then they store it. And they usually do not have the funds and resources to send it to a lab to be tested. Wow. So, it, so it stays there. And we're up to like 70,000 across the country. So you have women who are like, I, you know, I, I know who my rapist is. I took the, the test and I'm just waiting for it. You know, this DNA evidence evidence to go in effect so that person can be prosecuted but it's not happening so finally our white house Obama, the obama administration and new york city has said we're going to take a stand we're going to take some action and we're going to get this done you yeah, know it's a great thing and i'm really glad you brought that story up but because it, it's also sort of connected to the first topic we did today which yeah. is this money that, that the da's office has and the new york da's office some of this money at least has come from 
these types of prosecution agreements with big banks and with large fines that they've extracted from going after white collar criminals and corporate entities at the state level and at the city level. So it's very interesting that some of the money that we are getting um, out of these things that we were talking about, how we want some corporation to go to jail, uh, is also being used. But this is also a really great announcement. It's so great. What they, you know, they end up testing these kids and then sometimes they find that these people who have committed these crimes are like serial rapists right. who have committed crimes in other states. And that's a big reason why Cy Vance of the Manhattan DA's office has said, I want to donate the money to other states and other places because that can help us also solve crimes here, right here in New York City and in New York State. So it's interesting to see the connection between the first topic we talked about, the corporate prosecution issue and the money that is going to the rape kits, but also to answer the question of why New York City is taking an interest in helping to solve some of these unsolved crimes in other places. Selena? Right. So we actually have a caller on the line named Xavier who wants to speak about Donald Trump. We opened up the news roundup talking about Trump and he had some words for him. Uh, Xavier, you're on the line. Yes. We, 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 sometimes we talk about uh, Donald Trump as though he's just a buffoon. You know, but, you know, he, he's not a business tycoon for no reason. He had his hands in some of the, the goings on between the Mexicans coming over here um, for some decades ago. That's how he got some of his uh, construction buildings. You know, so it's like right now, by him bringing up the issue of immigration, like this here, it's, it might be one thing where it's like he might be on to something. And we laughing and joking at him and, 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 and sidestepping him. But you know what? The Mexicans... When the last time you had a, sat down and had a, a chit chat and conversation with a Mexican? Um, all right, so I want I want to respond to that really quick. Um, first of all, he inherited most of his wealth, um, so I think that's really important to remember that he was not just this nobody that had some great business ideas and you know made a lot of money for himself. He has made a lot of money for himself, but was born with a tremendous amount of privilege. Um, and on the issue of immigration, I don't think he's any. I mean, the things that he has said, he has offered no solutions. And what he has said has been xenophobic and racist. And I don't think, you know, I don't think it matters who he's spoken to. I don't think he's spoken to anybody. I think he's launching this racist tirade against um, immigrants from Mexico and people are showing their true colors by supporting him on that. Yeah, and if he was such a good businessman, um, well, let's look at his immigration policy. It would actually cost billions of dollars to build that wall that he's um, suggesting that we do and then to actually deport the $11.7 million million, um, million undocumented workers that we have in our country now. So that's not a good business tactic On top all. of that, they say that actually it would hurt businesses and it would hurt the American economy. What a lot of people don't realize is because they don't understand the facts. They just go based off of this reactionary, oh my God, people are coming and they're taking our jobs, which is ludicrous, um, which, you know, is entirely untrue. But what the real fact of the matter is, is that immigration um, actually, you know, and, and when we have a comprehensive immigration reform in place where we allow low-skill workers to come into the U.S. and fill some of the jobs that Americans aren't filling now and aren't going to fill, um, that actually boosts our economy. We see large increases in gross domestic product and in gross national product, and also we see increases in businesses in general. So immigration, from what the from the realistic standpoint, when you look at the numbers, actually 
actually helps our economy. Right. Also, a lot of the people that are coming here that are actually entering without inspection, which is the correct term for people that are crossing the border legally, at least a, a good portion of them are seeking asylum. What yeah. a lot of people don't know about our immigration laws is when you want to seek asylum, you actually have to come here. So there's two different ways to gain kind of asylum or refugee status, right? You can either become a refugee or you can seek asylum. What's the difference? In order to be a refugee, you have to go to a U.S. embassy while you're outside of the U.S. You have to apply for refugee status. You have to go through lots and lots and lots of background checks, X, Y, Z, this, that, and the third kind of things. And then the U.S. says, you know, we're going to give you refugee status. You can now come here. Now, in certain places, the U.S. does not have established embassies. And so because of that, people cannot just walk into an embassy and say, hey, I want to seek refugee status. Their option instead is to seek asylum. But asylum actually requires them to be physically present here in the United States, which right. in a, a majority of times can sometimes listen to, uh, you know, can sometimes lead to a, 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 a situation where people have to come here and right. enter illegally. And just lastly, I, you know, that's nice that he's um, a successful businessman. I don't think that if you are a leader in your industry, that necessarily means that you would be a successful and productive president. I just I just don't. Right. And we have on the line Ms. Deborah, who wanted to give a comment about Donald Trump really quickly. Ms. Deborah, the floor is yours. Hi. Just, uh, first of all, how are you? Just wanted to, I was just looking through some of the New York Times old um, issues, uh, New York region, and that was uh, July 26th. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I wanted to turn this down. July 26, 1992. And it was in regards to a young man who had beaten uh, Donald Trump's mother. He mugged her. And he received three to nine years for robbing her. Mm -hmm. Uh, she suffered a, a horrible brain hemorrhage and several fractures and permanent damage to her hearing. And I often wonder sometimes when I hear women just go on and on, no matter what he said. I mean, I believe he could rape somebody in the middle of Times Square, and they say, well, he's having a bad day. Why his mother never had um, uh, security? Right. Well, Ms. I'm definitely... And this was right after he decided that he wanted to send five black boys to prison and also to have the death penalty. Right. That's and, and they're talking about the Central Park Five with that one. And I know that he made a, a huge controversy over the Central Park Five um, and the young boys happen to be innocent. I haven't heard about the rape story, but I definitely want to check that out. Unfortunately, on that note, we do have to go on a break. But when we come back, we're going to be talking about why Republicans are trying to st uh, shut the government down again. So don't go anywhere. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Again, thanks so much for hanging out with us, guys. You can always call us up at 212-650-6903 because we appreciate your comments and your calls. And you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. So I want to take it back, but not too far, just like two years ago from today right if you can remember it was 2013 we were in september and we were approaching a looming government shutdown and then republicans actually shut 
the government down. Partial, uh, a partial part of the government shut down, and this was all over the Affordable Care Act. They made it their mission to stop President Obama from signing his signature health care law into um, signature health care act into law and giving the millions of Americans who never had health coverage um, coverage. And I was one of them, and I had Obamacare for a long. I had it for I think a year or two. Um, so you know, I was one of them that, that definitely appreciated and benefited. And I know a lot of young people, millennials, who they were also very appreciative because if you were under the age of 26 at that time, yep. you could stay on your parents' health care, you know. And it was just, I mean, something very positive, but we all know how Republicans are when the president tries to do something. So... Even though that partial government shutdown was horrible and it cost America $24 billion in 2013, like I said, guess what? They are trying to shut it down again. And this time it's all over their effort to defund Planned Parenthood. So if you haven't been paying attention, Planned Parenthood has been under fire for weeks now because a conservative anti-abortion group released videos earlier this year, which allegedly show medical workers affiliated with the pro-choice, um, uh, with the pro-choice not-for-profit uh, talking about the sale of aborted fetal tissue. So if you watch the videos, they are disturbing because the thing is, um, what this group did, they filmed the, you know, they filmed on the cover, these are medical workers talking about it. And then they edited the video so that you only hear certain parts and it hear and it sounds like there's this very callous and they're just like, yeah, let's use this, uh, you know, baby tissue for something. Right. It's, it's just not the case. And Planned Parenthood has came out and they, they described and they clarified what exactly what, what was happening. And it's a legal practice of collecting fetal tissue in order for it to be donated for medical research with the patient's consent. And and the, well, I was just say, which we actually did a whole oh, show yeah, on. So t check that out in our archive shows. Yeah, we, we definitely did that whole show on that. So following the release, uh, a group of GOP senators, they were like, you know what? We're going, we need to shut Planned Parenthood down. This is not the first time, not the second time, or the third time, or probably even the 50th time that they try to shut down Planned Parenthood. Um, according Because Planned Parenthood does offer abortions to their, their clients. But, I mean, if you look at Planned Parenthood in whole, um, the majority of the work they do is to help women women who you know who um either need to be to get like a screening or, or women who can't afford to get certain um or don't, or don't have access to certain medical um coverage they help those women in, in different ways and it's a service to women but they've been trying to shut it down so now nonetheless 31 conservative Republicans have pledged to vote against any spending bill that includes money for Planned Parenthood, even though federal law restricts that money from going towards abortions. So if they're successful they will be blocking the bill um, by September 30th, which is the deadline for the spending bill to be passed. And then the government will shut down October 1st. But I personally don't think it's going to happen. But you know what? There's still this uh, Ted Cruz in particular is leading this crusade to define Planned Parenthood. And we all know he's running for um president in 2016 so this is just great you know talking points and he can just really speak to that pro-choice those pro-choice vo uh, voters those pro-life voters um and that's what he's basically trying to do he's just trying to capitalize on it basically so i want to i just wanted to note that the house speaker 
and Senator uh, Mitch McConnell have both said, we're not going down this route again. We're just not going to do it. And Senator Cruz and the other right wing Republicans are like, we're still we're still going to strategize. He just held a meeting in his office. And we're like, we need to figure out a way to shut this government down over Planned Parenthood. Right. And it's just ridiculous. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, so to jump on that, what this says to me is two things. Number one, that. The govern the impending government shutdown, and I wouldn't be surprised if it happens, right? I, agree. I, I, totally I, agree. I am not giving them any benefit of the doubt. I would not be surprised if this happens. All this says to me is number one, that this impending government shutdown hinges on the effective effectiveness of a conservative propaganda viral video. This video that went out that was heavily edited, that wasn't factual in many ways, that really portrayed Planned Parenthood be something that it's not. Um, our whole government is going to shut down based on what that video represented, right? This conservative propaganda video. Number two, what this says to me is that 31 conservative Republicans in the Senate, including one of the front runners for the 2016 GOP presidential primaries, Ted Cruz, hate women. Right. Because only it's it's important to note that the federal funding Planned Parenthood receives a tremendous amount of federal funding. Right. Three percent of the services that they provide are for abortions and zero dollars by law goes to Planned Parenthood's um, abortion services. Right. Though the money that covers abortion services through Planned Parenthood is not funded by the federal government. It's funded by private donations and foundations and other fees um, and the like. By law, they cannot use federal funds to cover these services. So what Planned Parenthood does provide is health services for women, um, SDI screening and testing. Uh, and for anyone that thinks that Republicans are anti um you know, are anti-choice, that they're pro-life, that they want to reduce the amount of abortion. For exactly for that reason, right? If Republicans truly wanted to reduce the amount of abortions, and I don't think anybody is like super into abortions and loves it. Everybody knows that Nobody it's not... Nobody's pro-abortion. No one's pro-abortion. They're pro-choice, right? So um, if they really wanted to actually reduce the number of abortions in this country, they would increase funding to Planned Parenthood, right? Because... For exactly the reason that you said, just increasing birth control options um, and health and information. There's a lot of info. Planned Parenthood will um, run informational sessions and produce literature for women to read um, and for families to read to make choices or to help them make the choices around family planning. If Republicans actually wanted to reduce the number of abortions in this country, they would leave Planned Parenthood alone. Which leads you back into the idea that they are not pro-life, they are pro-birth. And they're right? anti-women. And they are anti-women um, because, you know, literally, as we've both just said, the number one way to reduce abortions in this country is to provide family planning and services and birth control. And if you want to defund the organization that provides the most plan, plan, you know, family planning services and the most birth control to people who otherwise couldn't afford it, then, you know, it just is kind of back words yeah <laughs> doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense to me it really doesn't guys and we actually have a caller on the line who would like to let his voice be heard on Planned Parenthood uh, good afternoon yes good afternoon you know it's obvious that you don't know the history of the Planned Parenthood you know uh, there, there's been a real diabolical agenda behind Planned Parenthood and it just goes to show that the way you just dismiss your, your former caller, Deborah, and, uh, and others, like, it just goes to show this is one reason why I would not vote for a Democrat 
for nothing no more. Because this new, uh, newfound, fable generation of, of yuppieism, you know, y'all is far removed from the real issue, you know. And this Planned Parenthood is very diabolical, you know, and it has a history of, 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 of destroying the uterus systems of, of the Hispanic woman and black woman. Uh, and you, you don't even, Margaret Sanger, you don't even, you don't even bring this to the, to the subject matter. I actually do know the history of Planned Parenthood, and I do know that Margaret Sanger was very much in favor of eugenics. However, that is the past, and that remains in the past. And while most people, like yourself, clearly think that's an important issue, the fact of the matter is today it's, generally speaking, irrelevant because of the fact that that is no longer the mission or goal of Planned Parenthood, nor is it exactly what Planned Parenthood is doing. And as I've already mentioned three or four times, the actual facts is Planned Parenthood is preventing more abortions than it is actually doing. So this idea, yes, people are stuck in a historical context where they are thinking about Margaret Sanger and about how she very much was a racist, and, and, you know, and xenophobic. And yes, that may be true. But we have to look at Planned Parenthood today in 2015, not at Planned Parenthood when they first got started. Right. And and that's where the, the discussion is geared towards the present day and all the good that they're doing. But I don't think that we should be dismissive towards this history because, I mean, it's just it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a stain in Planned Parenthood's uh, history and in Absolutely. American fabric. When it, I mean, it's just like slavery. They tried to take out and wash out black and brown babies and, and, and people. And, you know, uh, we do thank you for your comment. But I don't we're think stay we should like, be dismissive of it. Just to respond yeah. to that. I'm not saying we should be dismissive of it. I'm saying we shouldn't use that as a reason to say, let's not. defund Planned Parenthood no, today. Exactly. Unless your goal is to see an increase in abortions, because that's exactly what's going to happen if you decrease right. the funding to Planned Parenthood. So if your true thing is, I don't want to see abortions and I don't want to see black and brown people getting abortions, then you should say, hey, we need to fund Planned Parenthood more because they're the ones handing out the birth control that's well, preventing the the abortion. Well, the thing is, because this was such the severity behind it, I can understand why people aren't trusting of Planned Parenthood, especially if they don't know the resource, the, the, the research and the facts behind it and what they do. But the thing is, if you knew this and you grew up during that time in the history, I might I might not trust it either. I think that's a completely fair point. And again, and you you raise the, the point that um, it's like slavery in this country where we can't just ignore it and just say, well, it doesn't exist now, so let's move on. Right? right. It's something that definitely needs to be addressed. However, I think that the 31 conservative Republicans could not give a damn about um, the previous history. That's not why they're um, bringing great, this to light. Right. They could point. not. I mean, these 31 conservative Republicans consistently vote against the interests of black and brown people in this country. So that is not where they are coming from. And while it's a very very good and important point it's important to remember that these are people that do not care about the interests of of those people so speaking about the conservatives and the republicans and this tactic um so after the undercover sting videos were released it really shifted american discourse against planned parenthood especially um, among pro-life voters and the gop has done a great job at capitalizing on it and i wanted to ask you guys on the panel i mean the gop strategy is obviously effective to a certain large degree but is this good politics for the GOP no no, it's not. I mean, and it's not it's not good politics because this really hurt them the last time. And unfortunately, I, sh- I should say fortunately for them, when it really hurt them the last time in 2013, it was not before 
a major election. And by the time the midterms in 2014 rolled around, uh, it was sort of largely forgotten at the polls. I mean, people, when they went into the polls, weren't thinking like these people shut down the government. They were still voting, you know, for these people for other reasons. And so I think that politically speaking, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's the time of the year. It's 2015. The the race is not for another year. Maybe they don't care about whether it's politically detrimental because they're like, oh, well, you know, just like last time, voters aren't going to remember by the time the next cycle rolls around. On the other hand, I think voters might remember, especially because 2016 is a presidential election, which means a lot of people are, are going to come right. out that wouldn't normally come out for the midterms like they didn't, you know, like they didn't, I should say, in 2014. Well, I think that um, moving towards a government shutdown down um, is detrimental to the GOP, but is beneficial to Ted Cruz. And it certainly was last time around. So I think that he is going to launch a full scale charge towards the shutdown because his supporters will love him for that. But I I do think that it's a little less likely that the government will be shut down um, more than last time because of this big presidential election. And no matter what, the Republicans are going to look bad if the government has another shutdown. Right. And just to add on that really quickly, I don't think it's likely because of the internal conflict. Like uh, Boehner has come out, Mitch McConnell has come out, and a lot of people are like, it's not going to happen. So and it's just that that small sector in the Republican Party that are doing it for show. But on that note, we're going to go on a quick break. But when we come back, we'll have more about Planned Parenthood and the likelihood of another government shutdown. And we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard Radio. I'm Alyssa Fuchs. I am here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohn, and we are talking about uh, potential looming government shutdown 2.0 because (laughs) of what I will call the poison pill. There's always a poison pill. It's something that somebody inserts into a spending bill that they really want to get done, but that, you know, has no chance of passing on its own as its own bill. And so they say, hey, let's put it into this must-pass bill. Um, And then this way, the president's like, well, I won't pass a spending bill that also has that provision in it. And other people are like, well, we can't pass a spending bill that has that provision in it. And so it becomes this as I say, it poisons the entire bill. And so that leads to a situation where if you can't pass a continuing resolution to keep the money flowing, then the government has to come to a grinding halt. And so this is a tactic we are seeing now being used over and over and over again to try and get legislation passed that otherwise wouldn't be able to pass on its own by inserting it into must-pass legislation. Right. And it's callous and it completely disregards the American people and workers who have to suffer from it. So, I mean, it's something we shouldn't be doing. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I'll just speak more on that topic. So, I, you know, I know we sort of talked about the spending bill, but what's really happening is is this sort of goes back to 2013. So after the government shutdown ended, they passed what was called a continuing resolution. They did not pass a new budget for the right. year or for five years going forward or for 10 years going forward. They passed a stopgap measure. And now then they had to pass another stopgap measure last year. And now that stopgap measure to keep the government funded is now coming up again. And the real way to solve this issue is twofold as far as I'm concerned. And we can talk about more solutions later on in the conversation, though, is one, pass a budget. If you pass a (laughs) five-year budget, if there's actually a budget, even if it's a budget that, you know, is a compromise and, you know, the nature of the compromise is I don't get what I or everything that I want and you don't get everything that you want, but pass some kind of long-term actual budget so that there's no need to constantly be passing stopgap measures and then you won't 
have looming government shutdowns every well, six months. I think that's why we don't see a budget pass is because there's a very we have a Congress that's very unwilling to compromise with, with one another. Um, so, you know, ideally, right, if everybody was doing their job correctly, that's what we would get. But people are really digging in their heels. And this is what we saw last time around is that there's this pure unwillingness to compromise so we won't and it's to all of our detriment so you think that this is more of a strategy of they like doing these continuing resolutions instead of passing a budget so that they can essentially have some gravitas and hold something over somebody else's head later on when they want to get something done that they can't pass at all yeah interesting (laughs) theory i i think i mean i don't think it's good politics right or maybe it's great politics right to to just dig your heels in and use it as like a a chip to play that you know you're not um giving in to other people's interests just to do the right thing for the country but you're you know holding true and steadfast to uh right what your constituents may want Exactly. And, and it should be mentioned that the Republicans who are using this issue, which is Planned Parenthood, to try to shut down the government again this year. Um, if you look at if you look at what they're their reasoning behind it. Right. They, they want to shut it down because they don't believe that, you know, abortion should be permitted and a woman should make that decision. But the thing is, they're not really pro-life in a sense. They seem like they're pro-birth, because when you look at what happens when these babies are born, especially when they're born to women of low means or, or low income mothers, um, you know, they want to cut their food stamps. They want to cut WIC. They don't want to invest in their educational systems. So the thing is, it's, it's a complete hypocrisy the way I look at it and perceive it, because it's like if I I did have a baby now and you know and, I, and I'm not ready and, I, and I'm not financially stable how how do how would I supposed to be able to you know afford you know if a, uh, the food stamp system and the government entitlement programs these are lifelines for yeah. so many people in this country and they want to essentially cut them off absolutely and you know what and speaking of that coming up in just about five or six minutes or so we're going to be talking more about this issue when I talk about food insecurity because one of the things that we're seeing with food insecure households is about snap and we keep having Republicans that say, let's cut SNAP further and further and further and further. And yet food insecurity keeps growing and growing and growing. So, you know, that's definitely another issue. And Selena, you make a great point by bringing that up. I'm definitely going to address it during the quickie coming up in just a few minutes. So keep tuning in if you want to hear about that. But I also, you know, wanted to address this issue of the issue of the poison pill being Planned Parenthood this time. It's, you know, that's just what it is this time around. Last exactly. time it was Obamacare. This time it's Planned Parenthood. You know, next time it's going to be something else. And what it all comes down to is there are certain issues which some people will call fringe issues and other people will say, oh, well, they're not really fringe issues. They're things that, you know, people in the minority or in the Republican conservative parties really care about is these are issues that don't have enough support for them to actually go on the floor as actual laws. You know what? Here's what I say, which is if you want to defund Planned Parenthood, then put it on the floor as a law, as an actual law, and get people to vote for it. Don't do the shady thing, which is say, well, I can't get it passed through the front door. So instead, let me try and weasel my way in through the back door and use that as a way to potentially shut down the government. You know, like, just just put it out there. Let the American people see you vote up or down on the actual bill itself, whether it's defunding Obamacare or defunding Planned Parenthood or any of the multiple other things that Republicans want to do. That's fine. You want to do them, do them. But like I said, 
should, you know, come in through the front door and do them tra- in a transparent fashion where we can all see it. And clearly Americans like that, right? If we, we were talking earlier about how well people like Donald Trump and Ben Carson are polling, they don't like this shady backdoor politics. They want people to be upfront about their intentions. So if you do that, I think you'll be rewarded. I, on yeah. one level, yes, but on another level, no, because I think what also some people, at least in the conservative camp, like is they like the idea of obstructionism. Sure. They like the whole idea <laughs> of like not, you know, their whole idea is that they don't like government, so they don't want government to work. They want to sure. shrink government down to the size where it can fit down the drain in their bathtub. Mm-hmm. And so because they want government to be so small, no, that's an actual quote from Grover Norquist, you know, <laughs> government so small that it should be able to fit down the drain in my bathtub. And so if you don't like government and you're operating from the point where you're in the government, well, what's the best way to get your agenda of less government, which is to obstruct the government from being able to get anything done? So I think that on one level, yes, I think it could be helpful because people like transparency. But on the other level, you have a whole group of people that love obstructionism because they love the idea of shutting down the government right. because they don't like government. Yeah, right. It's true. And, true. and it does play into their, their larger, um, you know, mission to, you know, to basically destroy the Obama administration as well, because a lot of people and I remember the first time we had the government shut down, a lot of people who weren't following politics very closely were blaming President Obama. And they were like, well, why can't he get it together? Why can't he compromise? And then I remember I was, you know, communicating on my social media feed just to break it down about what's been happening. But the thing is, when it comes to like the, the when, you, when you look at it from a very surface level, a lot of people like to blame the top. And I think that they also know that and it does play into their larger strategy to to ruin again. And, uh, Obama's legacy in his administration. I totally agree with that. It also has to do with messaging. Like the Republican Party and conservatives in general, for some reason, are really, really good oh, yeah. at messaging. Really and are. it's because they use fear mongering rhetoric, whereas Democrats and liberals don't fear monger as much, if at all, really. And like this fear mongering strategy, it works, right? They're like, they use specific words and phrases. And, you know, you see this with Planned Parenthood, but you also see this with Obamacare, right? Death panels and, you know, ripping babies apart. And like, you know, they pick and choose words that they know are going to incite people in their base. And then when people get incited, they're like, oh, this is great. They're going to stop Obama. They're going to put their hand in in his face and say, stop, you can't do this because we're going to shut the government down. Right. No, no, no. And and so just to to conclude, guys, and I want to get your final thoughts on you know again um what would happen if the government does shut down the last time this happened in 2013 it wasn't a lot of accountability like republicans didn't own up and apologize or say anything like that some of them obama they blamed obama some of them were commended ted cruz his platform had rose uh, dramatically i mean a lot of them benefited and i want to say democrats also benefited because uh, both parties did a lot of fundraising around the government shutdown and they blamed each other and they made money do you guys think this would happen again yeah it is you know why (laughs) i'll tell you exactly why and this will be my final comment because the winners of a government shutdown are the politicians as you point out both the politicians on both sides of the aisle made money off the government shutdown because mm-hmm. Republicans were able to say, look, we did it. Give us money because we got in Obama's face and we shut it down. Yay, us. And Democrats were able to point fingers and say, Republicans shut it down and it's their fault. So give us money if you don't want it to happen again. And guess who? So the winners were the politicians and the losers were the American people. And yeah. that's why I think they will do it again because they care only about themselves and lining their own pockets and they do not give a crap about the American people. I think that's a really good point. And, you know, the last segment that we had, we talked about collateral consequences and the collateral consequences of shutting down the government are that 
everyday people that are employed or contracted by the U.S. government will not get paid and not be able to go to work while these politicians are getting funds thrown their way because everyone's like, oh, yeah, you, you did what we wanted and look how bad the other guy is. But in the meantime, lots of people are going to either like lose their jobs or not get paid for work and they can't afford that. Right. No, absolutely right. And, and just to conclude, I think that when these people were elected into their positions, they did it because based on their constituents and they made these promises and instead we're going to get things done. When they shut the government down, not only are you not getting anything done, but you're like derailing everyone's attention. And it's like it makes it even more impossible to try to compromise and to try to act in the betterment of the American people. And it's just something that sets us so far back economically, politically. It's just not something that's healthy in our democracy whatsoever. And I think that, you know, I, I know that they use it for, you know, to get these brownie points with their with their uh, constituents and with their supporters. And they do it, you know, so they can launch these platforms and become, you know, run for president and all this other stuff. But I think that if you can't be more, you know, more transparent or, or more just forthright when it comes to presenting your policies and using that to get where you need to go, then maybe you shouldn't even be in office. Uh, but on that note, we do have to go on a quick break. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to have the quickie. So and we are back and my name is Alyssa Fuchs I'm here with Selena Hill and Jackie Cohn and I am about to give you the quickie and today we are talking about food insecurity and food deserts and um, whether or not you've eaten today and I hope you have uh, but if you haven't then food insecurity might be an issue for you or you might just be lazy or hungover and decide that you don't want to eat because you drank too much alcohol last Oof. night um, I've been there I know what that is but that's not food insecurity that's just you being a drunk um, <laughs> Stanley. <laughs> uh, and so this is food insecurity. And food insecurity can manifest itself in many different ways. But it's generally the idea that uh, people or households in the U.S. are lacking access to good food. Not just to food, but to good food. So, uh, And that's also a problem with healthy food. food. Healthy, good, healthy food. So, yeah, maybe you have money to go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac for everybody in your family. And, you know, maybe that Big Mac tastes good and it fills up your stomach. But it does it have any nutritional value? Um, and maybe you don't have the money to go buy a salad, which actually has some nutritional value. And I'll be perfectly honest, I don't particularly like salad and I find Aww. it hard to eat my vegetables. So I'm, you know, I eat crappy food, but not because of not because I'm food insecure, because I make bad food choices. <laughs> the difference is people who are food insecure are forced into eating non-nutritious food because it is the only thing that's available in their neighborhoods that they can afford. And that's a really sad commentary. Um, we are the one of the richest countries in the world, and yet we have a more than 14% of U.S. households lacked access to enough good food at some point last year. That's according to the latest annual food insecurity estimate from the federal government. Um, just so you can get an idea of what 14% is, that's 17.5 million households in the United States were food insecure last year. Um, so what is food insecurity? How does it manifest? Who is struggling with hunger? Uh, where are we seeing that? And what can we do about it? And I'm going to try and answer some of those things. And as I already mentioned earlier, 
um, hoping that some show in the future, very near future, we are going to address this issue in more detail with a guest who can really speak on it. So I want to give you the basics today in the hopes that you will tune in for a future show to hear a lot more about this topic and to get involved in the conversation about this topic and what we can do about it. Uh, So although related, food insecurity and poverty are not the same thing. I know I mentioned that earlier. Poverty in the United States is only one factor of many factors that are associated with food insecurity. Uh, In fact, higher unemployment, lower household assets, and certain other demographic characteristics um, are things that also lead to a lack of access to adequate, nutritious food, as Jackie points out. It's not just a lack of access to food, but to good food. Um, Despite an improving economy, the rate of food insecurity is much higher than the 11.1% food insecurity we saw in 2007 before we had the onset of the Great Recession and the financial crisis, which we spoke about during our first segment. If you missed it, make sure you listen to our show once it goes up online. Definitely check it out because this issue we're having with food insecurity has some relationship to the fact that the bankers crashed our economy in 2008. Great. Nice, isn't it? Um, So we have millions of people in this country that are struggling with hunger. We are not a third world country. We are not in dire straits like some places in Africa, in South America. However, we do have a large amount of people, millions of people struggling with hunger. So what are some of those numbers? Uh, The last data that we have available is from 2013 to 2014. And what we find is that 49.1 million Americans lived in food insecure households. And that includes 33 3.3 million adults and 15.8 million children. Uh, 6% of households, which is 6.8 million households, experienced very low food security. Um, In 2013, households with children reported that food insecurity at a significantly higher rate than those without children. Uh, 20% of households that have children reported food insecurity as compared to 12% of food insecure households that only had adults. Um, And the households that had the highest rate of food insecurity Uh, Then the national average include households with children, as I mentioned, 20 percent, households headed by single women. uh, Another issue that we spoke about during our second segment when we talked about Planned Parenthood, 34 percent. Single men is at 23 percent. And not surprisingly, although very unfortunate, black non-Hispanic households at 26 percent and Hispanic households at 24 percent. So if you combine those two numbers, black, non-Hispanic and Hispanic together, 26 and 24, you're over 50 percent. That means more than half of the people in this country that are food insecure are either black or Hispanic. That is a really sad commentary on the state of America tonight. Um, Food insecurity exists in every county in America. It is not uh, in every county, even the richest counties, you still have people that are food insecure. Eight states have statistically higher food insecurity rates than any than the national average. You guys want to take a guess on this? You want to jump in here for a what second? states? Yeah. You want to take Red a guess? states. Red states. There yeah. you go. You want to give me an example? Maybe you can get one of the ones on my list. Kentucky. <laughs> nope. Kentucky's not on here. Alabama. Alabama, not on here. Oh. Mississippi. There you go. We got one. So Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, Missouri, Georgia, and Ohio, which is a purple state, exhibit statistically the highest, higher than national average feud and security rates. So let's talk about what, now that I've given you some of the numbers behind feud and security, let me tell you what food insecurity is and what it's about. Um, so people in food insecure households do not necessarily go hungry. Um, however, about two thirds of food insecure households mean uh, are what's considered low food security. That means although they manage to 
uh, get enough to eat, they compromised on the quality of the food or of the variety of the food that they were eating. Uh, members of these households are at very great risk for health problems, even though they're unlikely to suffer from hunger in the sense that they feel um, uneasiness or painful sensations caused by the lack of food. Uh, so what that means is People in these low food security households, they don't feel hungry. They're actually eating, but they're eating really awful food, such as McDonald's and Taco Bell and Wendy's and stuff that you really should eat in moderation um, or not at all. But they are eating that on the day-to-day norm because they cannot afford to buy uh, better foods such as, uh, you know, actual meat, protein, vegetables, the kinds of things that are actually good for you, whole grains, nutritious food instead. And even if they go to fast food, which apparently now fast food does have a lot of healthier options, um, they are not able to afford the healthier options. So they are eating off the dollar menu, which is stuff that is not necessarily the most nutritious food. And they also live in communities where they do not have access to good food because there are not restaurants serving good food. There are not necessarily supermarkets that are selling good food. And when there are, that kind of stuff is more expensive that they can afford. So they end up eating a lot of processed frozen food, which is stuff that they can afford. Um, Roughly a third of these food insecure households are what's called very low food security. Those That means a household where a member really did eat less at some point during the year. These are people who actually feel hungry. Um, and in most of these households, the adult respondent reports that in the past 12 months, he or she was hungry and did not eat because there wasn't enough money for food. Uh, what you should understand about these households is usually it's just adults who skip food in meals, sorry, in food insecure households with children. And the reason for that, as you could probably, uh, you know, so figure out yourself is the adult says, well, I have to feed my child, so I'm not going to eat today. And so an adult skips a meal to make sure that a child can eat. But when the child does eat, they are still eating this low quality food. And so it's not necessarily nutritious. And that's why you actually see high rates of obesity and high rates of juvenile diabetes in low income communities of colors has to do with the lack of access to good food. And also, you know, the lack of access to just, you know, the lack of money to be able to afford good food and adults skipping meals in order to make sure kids eat. Um, You should also understand that food insecurity is actually the highest in rural areas. In cities, you have less food insecurity than you do in rural rural areas. And part of that is we have sometimes better social services networks. I won't say New York has the greatest, but in New York, we do have lots of food pantries, soup kitchens. Um, In blue states and in large cities, you have better access to welfare benefits, whereas in rural areas, you'll see like in Kansas and Mississippi, where the states have kind of cut snap across the board. And so that actually leads to a situation where you see a dramatic increase um, in food insecurity in rural areas over urban areas, um, which a lot of people will actually find to be kind of surprising. I do know we have to wrap this up, but... Although there has been dramatic increases in government spending on SNAP and related programs, you don't see a lowering of food insecurity numbers. That means that the spending is producing stagnant results, and we have to figure out a way to better spend money on SNAP uh, so that we can make sure that people who are on SNAP can get access to higher quality food rather than just being able to eat. Um, And the other thing that we should understand is that food insecurity isn't just necessarily about food stamps or about entitlement programs as they are called, although, you know, I don't want to get into the debate over semantics about what we call those, but these also have to do with bigger picture issues. I've mentioned this before. Everything is related to everything else. Stagnant wages, 
shrunken employment to population ratio, um, reduce reduction in these welfare programs, um, and every other thing that society does to help struggling families, other than food programs such as social security and other and healthcare and a lot of other things, has actually shrunk since the Great Recession. So all of those things are factors into why so many households are food insecure. Thank you for that, Alyssa. And on that note, we have to say goodbye for now. But Aww. guess what? We'll be right back here, same time, same place next. Sunday, God willing, and also you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, and Scatter Radio. Let your voice be heard, and of course, you can just check us out on our website, lyvbh.com. We'll see you again next Sunday.